Well, I think we're going to have to just record over Zoom because here we are, you know. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we know that you're a busy guy and we know that Moore's a busy guy and and I'm just coming along for the ride. So why don't we get started? You ready to go, Mike? Yeah. Give me one second. I'm just going to also record this. <clears throat> yeah. Well, maybe before we start, Andy, do you have any questions for us? I did you research the podcast at all? Do you know anything about us? <laughs> nope. I uh, I just say yes and jump in and whatever happens, Man. happens. So I, I I like cannot, there's this red button here. I can just leave if things get too weird. So. Uh, the eject button. Oh, right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Mike Moore, if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm ready. We, we do not have the music, though, but I'm ready. All right. Can you sing a little bit, though? I, to get, I can. To get us I, in the mood. I definitely cannot do the lo-fi intro music all right so andy will banter for a little bit and then we'll introduce you okay hey everybody it's uh dave fitch and mike moore theology on mission podcast and we're back we're back and it's a rainy day in chicago whenever i don't have anything to say mike moore i always go to the weather yeah we talked about the weather when we had power was on the episode two weeks ago and it didn't go really well, so I actually went in and edited it out, so I'll probably do that again since we're oh, talking about Oh, come on, really? I'm kidding, I'm uh, kidding, I'm uh, kidding. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go too long on this, but really, uh, talking about the weather <clears throat> is a very good filler strategy. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're ever in a conversation with someone and you don't know what else to say, go to the weather. Don't talk about their clothes, don't talk about their shoes. Weather. <laughs> Anyways, speaking of weather, we have a very special guest from the, the, the place in the United States where I most often think about great weather. Don't you think when you think Minnesota, Mm. Mike Moore, don't you think great weather? It's great hockey weather, skating on the pond. I was just there over the weekend and I'm telling you, hockey's everywhere. Yeah, you were up in Minneapolis. I was up and we were doing a college visit at Bethel, Uh, but before, but let's, we got to introduce Dr. Andrew Root here so he can actually get in on the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, our very special guest for Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets the issues of culture for Christ and his mission. Did you see how I smoothly entered that in, Mike? So smooth. So smooth. But, but Dr. Root is the Carrie Olson Baleson chair of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary. I hope I got that right, Andy. And we're so privileged to have you here. You have written so many books, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, I have before me The Congregation in a Secular Age, which I think was two years ago, The Church After Innovation, which I think was this year, and then The End of Youth Ministry, uh, I don't even know what order they're in, but they're all recent, and uh, we want to talk about them today with Dr. Andy Root. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Root. Could, should I call you Dr. Root? No, you should call me Andy, and you know, I was really excited because it sounded like this was going to be a hockey podcast for a while, and I was ready I was ready to go. Don't tempt <laughs> Don't tempt us. And, yeah, you, you, are, you are tempting Fitch if you start talking <laughs> about hockey. <laughs> Fitch is a former hockey coach, and I might add, I hate the Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> They're doing so great this year, and literally there's no one under the age of 45 That's that right. plays on that team. That's right. <laughs> age age works. <laughs> okay, so let's begin, Andy, by just saying, you know, I was at Northwestern University in the 90s when I was a very young man doing my PhD, 
and they sent me over to the philosophy department. I was doing theology and culture, and they sent me over there to study Charles Taylor with this new hire who was a non-tenured faculty person, but he was a uh, a person who had studied very closely with, with Charles Taylor. And we read Sources of the Self and, and his language agency writings collections, and he eventually came onto the faculty at Northwestern in the five or six years later. And I got to listen to a lecture, and he became part of my work. I'm stunned by how significant of a part of your oeuvre he is. How did that happen, that Charles Taylor became so important to you and your thinking and your work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't have a great conversion story to Charles Taylor necessarily, other than probably the, the you know, well, to, to quote Taylor's teacher, Isaiah Berlin, you know, where he says that there are hedgehogs and that there are foxes, you know, and, that, and he's trying to break up all philosophers and actually breaking up Russian literature around hedgehogs and, and foxes. And, you know, he says the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one thing. I've really only been after one thing probably in my whole academic pursuits and which is really to try to talk about the concreteness of revelation in this world and so i stumbled on taylor because i just found the description to be so helpful on why that seems so difficult you know coming from uh, i think all my books really come from the place of of concrete ministry and and how hard it is i think for the pastor or the youth worker or whoever to really witness to a living jesus christ in the world has been at the core of my project. Taylor, I don't know. I mean, in some ways he helps us constructively with that argument, but more so he helps us descriptively understand why that seems so slippery and why that seems so difficult. Mm -hmm. So at least for the last, whatever it is, six years or so, six to eight years, uh, Taylor's just been uh, really impactful as a as a descriptive dialogue partner. And I have, have found him really, really important in the way that you open up a secular age and it feels like a different book every time you read it, you know? So I don't know if that means it's a great book or it's not a great book. I mean, I find it to be a great book, but it has so much in it. And there's just uh, loaded with kind of peels from an onion that you can, you can take and, and work with. So that's been uh, pretty captivating for me. Yeah, and I, I particularly like the way you use Taylor's uh, construction of secularity and secular age and the various constructs that we're all engaging in trying to figure out how to be a faithful Christian in the midst of these social forces all around us. And I think you've done it uh, across the board in youth ministry, congregational ministry, trying to understand identity construction. You've you've just tackled so many different areas. Um, I, I hate to put you on the spot like this. But summarize for me your three biggest learnings about secularity and culture oh. from Charles Taylor, Man. who, by the way, is a Canadian. And I don't I don't know if I, he's ever been on the ice or not, but it's hard for me to believe he would not have ever got on the skates and shot a hockey puck. But anyways, well, I, I'm sure he has. And I, I, I had uh, one opportunity to have have a coffee with Charles Taylor. And I asked him if he was still, you know, if he was a hockey fan. And he made it very clear that he used to be a big Montreal Canadiens fan, but he cannot live with, you know, he lived through the glory days of all those Stanley Cups for the Montreal Canadiens. And he seemed really depressed since then. And, you know, if you know Taylor, listen to him, he's so positive and so ironic. But when we talked about the Habs, when we talked about the Montreal Canadiens, I saw a deep existential darkness come over him. So I, I don't know what 
that I don't know what that means. So, oh uh, man. So there, there's me trying to stall for time to answer this on the spot question. And, and I, do it in three sentences or less. Oh, three sentences or less. Yeah. I think what I take from him that I found really probably generative to the point of annoying my reader is just the way he unpacks the secular in its, in its three forms, really in its four forms, you know, a, a pre-secular and then the different the different kind of ways that to talk about the secular, you have to unfold it as a multivalent kind of concept that you can't just assume it's fewer and fewer people are going to church. Mm -hmm. That probably the articulation of the self as porous has been significant. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you four, then the imminent frame, how we live inside an imminent frame. And you can see how that's important as I'm trying to help pastors talk about God again to to help them realize that they're embedded in an imminent frame. And that's what makes, in many ways, this such a difficult task. And then the last thing is the, the age of authenticity. I find that really quite captivating, how we've made this switch to authenticity being our highest good that we're, that we're seeking. Awesome. Awesome. And and by the way, folks, those of you who are looking to study this uh, more in depth, we actually use Taylor to to at least describe the idea of self and the, the construct of self and in uh, late modernity and secularity in our Doctor of Contextual Theology program. So anyways, if you're interested in that, I think uh, we're going to have another cohort open in about a year. You write, okay, after this, Mike, I'm going to throw it over to you because I, I, I could easily dominate yeah. this discussion and we do not want that. But you, you write about, so, so believe it or not, I've got, I've got a teenager and he's He's going through everything a teenager goes through. And you you write about this strange search for identity, this thing, the, the search for the thing, you say, the, the thing that teen, teenagers want. And, and you do this in collaboration with, of course, the idea of authentic, the ethics of authenticity. And, and, and so and, and, and you say, even though, you know, parents have the best intentions offering things, you cannot control your teenager how many people out there are listening who have teenagers are saying amen so what is a parent supposed to do dr root tell millions of people listening right now are please tell us what are we supposed to do and by the way folks the end of youth ministry is one of andrew's books and it gets into this, but anyways, I'll let him talk about it as well. <laughs> well, if I knew what to do, I have an 18 year old and a 15 year old, so I'm, I'm with you. And if I knew what to do, I would, I would uh, demand that this podcast be, be behind a paywall and we'd all make a lot of money <laughs> if, if I actually knew what, what to do. But I do think that it's a real struggle right now in, in particularly thinking about middle-class parents. I mean, this, this sense of controllability, I think is really quite fascinating and, and interesting. How do we control them? And and I've been working a lot with a German sociologist where Hartmut Rosa, who actually builds off Taylor in his own way. And he has this really captivating called the uncontrollability of the world, where he thinks the real pursuit of modernity is to control the world. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we actually alienate ourselves from the world and it, it imposes all sorts of uh, warped perspectives on us. And he doesn't necessarily go into parenting, but when I read it, I think of it so much as parenting, you know, that the saying now is that uh, instead of us parenting our kids for the road, we try to prepare, instead of preparing our kids for the road, we try to prepare the road for our kids. And I think that's just a, a major uh, element of, of kind of being a middle-class American or North American is that you're, you have this deep anxiety about preparing the road for your kids. But this thing that you were talking about, I, I find it really interesting inside of Taylor's age of authenticity, where the age of authenticity he wants to remind us is actually based 
based in an ethic. I mean, all of Charles Taylor, there's always we are moral believing animals. So there's a deep sense of the of the good life that's always central to us. And so for him, there's this ethic of authenticity that says every human being has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. And no human being should ever tell another human being what it means for them to be human. And I think when you land that in the lap of parent, that becomes quite difficult. How do you actually form your child? How do you pass on? things on your child how do you shape your child's life in a way that doesn't violate this very tacit reality i mean you feel this more tacitly than explicitly but this sense that you can't violate the age of authenticity the ethic of authenticity and if you put your hands too tightly on your on the direction of your child's life in the sense of their, their character or their vision of what it would mean to live their life, then you violate the age of authenticity. Mm-hmm. So to prepare this road, one of the things you do inside of not being able to pass on too many values or you know even practices being open to debate, that one of the things you can do is get your kid really involved in all sorts of extracurricular activities, help them find their thing. And you can imagine as this is connected with a deep sense of identity where it becomes the young person's pursuit to figure out who they are and that identity those identity options really exponentially exploding in the last decade or two it can become quite a frightening process for parents but they can't impose on that definition that answering who am i but what you can do is you know help your kid find their thing whether that's soccer or whether that's piano or whether that's being in a an advanced choir or or playing you know the guitar and being in a band or whatever that might be. So the parent's job then becomes really to organize their kids' lives and get them exposed to all sorts of different things. And I I talked to some parents for that book, The End of Youth Ministry, and it was amazing to me whether they were really conservative Protestants or liberal Protestants or had no connection to the church. The biggest parental task that they would say thereafter is helping their kid figure out who they are by finding the thing that they are connected to that, you know, whether that's a basketball or what have you, what kind of extracurricular activity becomes the thing that's supposed to, in some ways, press the soft clay of the, of the young person's identity and frame their life. And so I think it becomes a really interesting strategy inside of an age of authenticity to direct your kid's life without putting your hands too firmly on, on their character and imposing values on them. Hmm. And, and so you're saying that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, flood your teenager with things. Uh, no, in, in what yeah. you just—you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm <laughs> saying that it's—it uh, exhausts us all, and it—and I'm not sure it does the work we want it to do. But we—we we feel pretty stuck within it. And uh, one of my biggest worries is that we send, tend to then see the church as a thing amongst things, and then we—we we get so obsessed with thinking of how any church involvement slides down those lists of other things that are involved in people's lives. And then we impose it on ourselves. Like, well, if our preaching was just really good at this church, then people would come to church instead of, you know, taking their kids to to soccer. Or if our youth group was really valuable, then they would choose to come to youth group instead. I think that's a deadly game for, for the pastor and the minister to play, to try to compete amongst the the things. And, and you do such a great job uh, describing all all that architecture there of how we try to orchestrate things and how youth group kind of gets put lower on the pecking order. And, and we, we feel this, you say. We do it because we feel like playing the piano is this is a once in a lifetime opportunity or it's going to youth group, uh, you know, and and mm-hmm. and so this is the, the place where we're stuck in. And so uh, uh, I got to admit, it's it's a conundrum. But I've but folks, I find 
prayer is is something happens when I pray for my teenager and I'm sitting across from him in a breakfast nook. Lord, be present. Make this conversation real. Blah, you know, something like that. And and I find actually something might happen. Or, mm-hmm. Whereas opposed, Mike, you know my favorite hockey story. I, my, I, I coached my son. He became top scorer in Bantam Gold. And then, then he quits. And and then I and then I heard him say to another adult who asked him, "Do you still play hockey?" He goes, "No, but I might start again, but this time I won't do it because my dad made me." Okay, this <laughs> this this is all an illustration, folks, of the of Andrew Root's thesis in the end of youth ministry that you cannot control your kids or live vicariously through them. Oh yeah, that's good, <laughs> Andy. You, you said that you didn't know anything about this podcast. Dave and I talk a lot about church planting, and we're both going through your, uh, I'm holding it up, people can't see it, but we're going through your church after innovation uh, book, so we weren't trying to invite you into the lion's den, but uh, you know, we, we might have some church planting questions for you. What would you say is the vision of the good life in a church that elevates innovation? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is my real, that, that book I feel like is my ultimate Charles Taylor book because I'm trying to be so ironic in it. I mean, I'm probably making enemies all over the place with it, but I'm trying to say like, I'm not against innovation, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. we should think about it, you know, like, and that's what's I think beautiful about Taylor and also really annoying about him. He's, he's so ironic and he's trying to always be supportive and find a, a middle way through. But I guess my concern is, first of all, out across Protestantism, I don't know if you guys would say that you see this too, but it, we really are in the middle. Of, it feels like to me innovation fever that everyone's kind of talking about innovation, whether at large the seminary level. I mean, my own seminary is talking about being innovative to you know foundations, to camps, to, to Christian colleges. And right. of course, at, at congregational level, everybody wants to be innovative. And I guess I just have that kind of genealogy bug in me where I want to know, well, where did this come from and, and what is it really what are we talking about here when we talk about about innovation? And I guess my biggest concern that I'm, I'm wondering how we escape, and I think we have to, is this kind of obsession with resources as, mm-hmm. as a form of the good life. And so I think it happens at an individual level, but also an institutional level that our deepest, our deepest existential crisis is not that we won't be able to gain more, but that we'll lose what we have and that we are really quite frightened that it will all d- just disappear if we don't particularly continue to accelerate and do more. And, and this is what Hartmont Rosa calls dynamic stabilization, that all the kind of institutional structures of modernity stabilize themselves by some form of further growth. And, you know, that's just the world we live in. But I do mm-hmm. worry that when dynamic stabilization becomes the justification for congregational life, that it opens up sort of all sorts of problems. And so th- that's my biggest concern is that maybe a congregation or organization that hasn't thought through innovation hasn't found a way to kind of extract itself from this accelerating mode of, of being, um, hasn't, hasn't thought beyond kind of the way resource obsession sets the terms for our lives, and therefore has this deep temptation to think of what is good as what can be optimized, what can be grown. And while there is something that that is true that healthy things grow, it also is true that really unhealthy things grow too or overgrow. You know, like we all would worry about our 12-year-old kid if if our 12-year-old kid wasn't growing, but we'd also be really frightened if our 12-year-old kid was all of a sudden 20 feet tall, you know, so that you, you, that that would be a, a real concern too. So I'm really just trying to I'm 
try to put that in frame. And I am yeah. I'm, I'm worried about how ministry becomes captivated by the kind of fear of decline that gets that gets translated mm. into we need more resources and we need to optimize more resources. Hmm. Well, you, you say the fear of decline when you're in these conversations. How do people equate mission? Because I, I understand you're saying mission is innovation and there's kind of this feedback loop. Do you ever hear people saying mission is evangelism? Then, you know, then evangelism, you know, how do we achieve this is by innovation. But then when you look at most church plants, they're not actually drawing in people who are not Christians. They're mostly, you know, rearranging the pews a little bit. Do, Do you ever hear that mission evangelism you know, folding together. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do. And I think there is, I mean, I would really want to push into that. I, I, I'm all for kind of thinking about mission and evangelism. I, I have been concerned as you, you read in the book about how kind of uh, innovation and mission get equated as the same thing. I, I do think there's a way to think about innovation as part of, of mission, but I don't want them to be equated with the same thing. In other words, if mission is embedded primarily in the very act and being of God, I think it would be potentially theologically problematic to, to call God the ultimate innovator or something. Mm-hmm. And I really do mean by this kind of thinking of innovation in a in a kind of Silicon Valley kind of based way. And I just do want us to be really aware that that innovation in the kind of sense of ideation and kind of optimization that's found its way into our larger culture has been a form of neoliberal work that really does prop up the self in a certain way. Um, you know, it takes us back to our conversation about the self. And I just, I, I want us to be, I want us to think about that because I do think there's some potential backwash that comes in on this. And, and it is really interesting, you know, that Protestantism, in many ways affected the way we think about work for 400 years, for 300 years. And now I find it quite interesting that a form of work has washed back into the church. And what I'm ultimately concerned about is how that sets the terms for what a good pastor is, you know, that a good mm-hmm. pastor needs to somehow show the marks of of the innovator to, to be to be valued, say, in their synod or in their network or whatever. Yeah. So I think I really do deeply want to have a have a place for evangelism and maybe even a place for for innovating and for innovation within in, within institutions. But I do think that has to go through some kind of dialectic or at least some more kind of theological reflection. I think. Mm. Yeah. Oh, uh, I I have another question, Fitch. But are you no? No, okay. go, go. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, how much of this could you tie back to the Reformed theology that elevate vocation? You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. ordained in the Christian Reformed Church, so there's not a single mm-hmm. sphere. You know, all yeah. these spheres, <laughs> they're all ours. We, You know, we got to go get these spheres and... Here we bat- go, ladies and ba- gentlemen. Ba- baptize, <laughs> ba- <laughs> baptize them in the name of Jesus. Um, yeah. But but that, that assumes Christendom as part yeah. of the culture. And yeah. And now we're in a culture that's, you know, you know, Fitch and I would argue, I think I can speak for Dave, that's, that's moving in certain segments towards post-Christendom. So how much of this do we have to attribute to, uh, you know, Calvin? I know you're a Lutheran yeah. seminary, Luther, and, and these visions of vocation and how they connect with our Christian calling. Yeah, I think we, I think we have to equate 
a huge percentage of it to that. You know, there there is even in that the Church After Innovation book where Taylor shows up, but maybe not uh, as directly as in other works. He's there. I mean, that where Taylor really thinks that the kind of secular age we're living in is really born off the back of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the most interesting things I think he says, which is really quite phenomenal to think about, is that it's only from the kind of birth or from the womb of a society that really, 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 really deeply believed in God and really, really wanted God to matter in every part of our lives, that you could get the kind of society we have now where God is just a pure option amongst mm-hmm. other options. So it, it has to come from the womb of, of really a high bar that allows for that bar to go all the way low and to be one option among many. I mean, I think that's really interesting about Taylor. So this is definitely, I mean, I, I guess I'm, the story I'm trying to tell is really right out of a kind of Max Weber's kind of take on capitalism, that capitalism is really is born out of a form of belief in that every minute of every day, every way you work really matters to God. And there's a certain contradiction that's infused within the capitalist project, which, of course, the contradiction at the very beginning is the people of free grace feel like they have to work really super hard um, to show that they're elect or, you know, to live out their Christian life. And I think this just starts to evolve. And I try to tell the story that by the mid 20th century, the cultural contradiction of of, of capitalism is balanced in a different way. And it's really balanced in a kind of madman way where, you know, where you're at, a la Daniel Bell's work from, from Harvard in mid-century, where you try to be a, a, a Puritan at work, but a hedonist at home, you know, like you work really hard. Um, and that all changes really into the 1980s and the 1990s, where the way we now balance the cultural contradictions of capitalism is really to make work a place where you can work on the self and that every individual becomes their own business and that you can even turn a business from really small to really big really quickly if you can find a way to live inside of a, a form of permanent innovation. And it's you know, while that's been with us for three decades, it's now I think that the church has started to pick up that rhetoric and recognize that what it could really use is an innovation, innovation work makeover, and that it could use some of the goods of that. And so I, I, I want to question it in some ways, and I just want us to be be aware of that. And I, I do think, you know, this is back to what we said earlier, that the project of the self and how the church deals with the self is really at the forefront of, I think, the, the practice of ministry. And there is ways, if we're not careful, that the innovative kind of management strategies of a Silicon Valley-based economy raises the self to be the winner, the conqueror, the one who's optimizing the self ultimately becomes a performative self. And I think that has come some inherent theological problems with it. Mm. Well, there's a lot of heavy stuff here, uh, Mike Moore, Uh, a lot of heavy stuff. Uh, Maybe I'm going to try to dumb it down a little bit. Wait, I thought we said we can't use those terms, dumb it down. I'm going to try to simplify it. Okay, (laughs) it seems to me you're juxtaposing two options for the church. One values creativity, uh, highly creative minds, selves, creative creativity comes from this inner self. Reminds me of the guy I saw preach like 20 years ago and he was he was riding a he, for some reason he decided he's going to ride a unicycle 
right down the middle of the sanctuary with his Bible. And everyone's going, whoa, whoa, what is this? This is interesting. Oh, but it had nothing to do with the sermon. Okay. But it was creative. Okay. So we have the option of creativity. On the other hand, if we're looking to be faithful and and understand what we are to do and be as a church, there's the tradition, the wisdom of the history of the church, and they're kind of juxtaposed. I'm wondering, okay, so I have a little Anabaptist edge to me. Us Anabaptists always want to say, oh, Constantine screwed everything up. Money, power, everything got screwed up. Let's just go back to the simple days, AD. It was really, and it wasn't, by the way. But you're not saying, let's just go back and start all over again. Let's get back to the New Testament. What We got these two options. First of all, did I get the two options right for all those pastors and leaders trying to figure out what we're talking about? And then what are you saying we should do with those two options? Yeah, I'm not satisfied with either of those two options, but I see uh-huh. those two options. Those two options play out, I think, everywhere. And, and you know, I, in in the book, I try to to frame them as kind of ideal types through two characters, where one I call Applebee's boy, who because he set up a, that kind of Applebee's as the church kind of metaphor, but. This person just wants to innovate, go, 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 go. Who cares about what happened in the past? We either, you know, or, or we die. And you've all been at these kind of pastor's events, especially if you've been part of a denomination where then you sit at someone's table and you realize really quickly that you're at the curmudgeonly perspective and, and you're like, uh-oh. And so usually, at least in the traditions I'm in, they're usually uh, late career men with uh, with that wear turtlenecks and their beard hair and their turtleneck are the same color. So I think I call this person bearded brown turtleneck. And they tell you really quickly. You better not like, be uh, talking about me right now. <laughs> but you realize really quickly, like, oh, I don't want to be with these guys either. Because their, their, their response kind of is, if we could just get back to the way we used to do the liturgy in 1962, then everything right. would be okay. And if we could just get back to, you know, right after the creeds were written or something like that, you know, everything would be fine. Or it's once we, it's once we stop doing this liturgical confession that everything went bad. And, and I'm not really satisfied with either of those things. I mean, uh, ultimately my big project is how do we kind of concretely as, as people in, I guess for me, I have this very kind of Bonhoefferian kind of perspective. Everything comes back to Bonhoeffer for me. So I'm really interested in the kind of concreteness of revelation. How do we help people encounter the the concrete presence of Jesus Christ? And, and theologically for me, constructively, that really is through persons in relationship. And so I don't want the pastor to be distracted from the beauty of getting people together to pray with one another, to send them out into the world, to be persons with one another, to minister to the world and to think about ministry, not as a kind of optimizing way of harvesting resources, but of a way of encountering your neighbor, a way of in encountering God in the world. And so I'm trying to think beyond those two to think of where is it? I guess I'm skeptical that just taking on innovative practices and turning our, our, kind of our communities into idea labs will get us to the kind of transformational dynamic of that we that I think we long for in the spirit that will really yeah will really kind of witness to a crucified Christ who is alive bringing life out of death and and I guess I want the pastor ultimately to still feel like her ministry is of utter value 
And it isn't about kind of creative creativity to create resources, but to walk with people in life and death in their in her community is of, of utter beauty and importance. So so good, you know. I think back. Let's see. This this is probably in the '90s now. A lot of us were rebounding off of the meg the evangelical megachurch, which was in the '80s the innovation. But then a whole ton of people from that went to, this is evangelicals, by the way, we're talking about. Are we allowed to say that word still? Evangelical. <laughs> and, and they went to liturgical churches. There's books written about the big move. And so there's this move towards tradition, wisdom, and liturgy, ancient future. That was Bob Weber here at Northern Seminary back then. I think Mike Moore maybe had been influenced by Bob Weber, like myself. And and yet, I, I remember going to a, a service, one of the churches I planted, and going, can we please translate what these words mean? We're having people come in, and they don't know what epiclesis means. Can you please translate and so we're kind of in this strange place. Uh, and I don't know, Andy, can Mike, please help the old man out. What, what are we? <laughs> what I think is interesting is that a lot of those evangelicals that went down the Canterbury Trail and started you know, moving towards liturgy, that actually became a form of innovation for, for some. That's what we thought. We thought that that was cool. <laughs> and then the people from from the Lutheran church down the road said, what are you talking about? We've been doing this for 500 years. Nothing ever changed. What's so cool about this? Uh, okay, so I'm describing this kind of malaise. I, I'll call it a malaise, even though I think that's a favorite term of Charles Taylor, too. And, and we got to bring this podcast to a, we got to have a home run. We got to have a zinger. We got we to gotta land this thing. And so somebody, please, what do we do in this malaise in three sentences or less, Andrew. <laughs> well, what I would, what I really hope we can do is going to feel, especially to those who have have kind of, uh, I don't know what what the analogy would be, kind of breathed in the fumes of innovation, will feel very very unsatisfying. But I, one of the books that you didn't reference is a book called Churches in the Crisis of Decline, which is a kind of dialogue between Charles Taylor and Karl Barth, which seems you know really obscure, but I hope there's a, a story of a church that in many ways is the opposite of a, of a, of a church plan. It's a, a church in decline, a church that's about to close. And I kind of try to tell a, a kind of Quentin Tarantino alternate history of what would have kept this church that turned into a brewery open. And where, you know, ultimately really land the plane is I think that what what would maybe keep this church open is to have a disposition that it's a waiting church, that it really is waiting for God. And while it waits for God, it really tends to the relationships between the people in the community and the church and, and within the relationships within the church itself. And then it waits with God. It waits for God. But that also means that a huge leadership objective here is if we're going to wait, we don't want to just like wait in a waiting room. We don't want to just, you know, like wait for our plane that's delayed three hours, that we need a kind of a, a shorthand of a story to wait for, that we need a watchword of how God has already shown up in this community, whether historically or in, 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 the, in the near 
in the near present has, has, has shown up and that we wait, we wait for God watching. And so I just wonder if part of, if we really are trying to help people and we're surely trying to plant churches in a lot of what, what you guys do, where, you know, where we're, we're talking about a God who is God, um, then that can't be optimized. We have to learn to wait. So how do we create communities that can pray together and, and wait for God and give ministry to the world that often is, is through forms of suffering and death? So you can, you can see that my theological commitments are really, you know, embedded in Luther's theology of the cross, that the place where we can start to be, be very attentive that God might be moving is when death is death experiences are shared and new life comes out of that. And often you don't have time for that in, in a lot of the ways we talk about ministry, that we need to get on to something more. We need to build something instead of really tending to those narratives and those stories and relationships of, of loss and of yearning. Oh man, that is so good. Uh, this and and I can see some of Bart's influence there as well. Uh, but a way of talking about this is: can we kind of make a lot of us are coming out of COVID nineteen. Uh, a lot of us are coming out of churches that are one third the size. A lot of us are in churches that are one third the size of what they were five years ago. A lot of us are wondering what to do. And and it seems to me what you're challenging us to do is to make space for God's presence to be revealed among us, not control, innovate, to manufacture something which is new, which may not have much to do with God at all, but instead create communities that are praying and worshiping and making space for him to work in the neighborhoods. Mike Moore, can you buy into this? Is it, yeah. Are you on board? Is there an amen uh, yeah. in the congregation? Yeah, I, I, I am on board. I think the challenge is that waiting really doesn't sell very well in our, as Andrew was saying, our neoliberal marketplace. Um, waiting doesn't really get you the clicks or the likes or... Or the, or the big or the big paycheck yes but or, yeah, but yeah. but but maybe that's where we've all arrived anyways well I want to say hey this has been a very thick and uh challenging and encouraging conversation as to how we uh, dispositionally got to face the changes and the secularity of our culture and innovation so we want to give we want to thank you Andrew for being on the podcast. Yes. Uh, we want to just, re- by the way, of these three books, The End of Youth Ministry, maybe it's because I have a teenager. It was fabulous. The Church After Innovation. Andrew writes, I, don't, I can't call you Andy. Andrew, Dr. Root writes very lively out of stories, out of real life. And it's gr- just great. The Congregation in the Secular Age as well. And then there's others. There's about 10 others. We want to recommend them all. Thanks for being here. Thanks to Mike Moore for putting this together. It's another episode of Theology on Mission podcast. And uh, so until next time, it's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. It was a fun conversation. Thanks for having me.